the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We have been investigating the faith-centered foundation of the American resistance as found inside the pages of this new book, By the Hand of Providence. By the way, for you homeschooling parents out there in particular, I mean, the book is great for anybody, but homeschooling parents... You're looking for a great book that can be a wonderful teaching tool. Uh, you're going to want to go out and pick up a copy of this. Howard is the publisher available to bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Those one or two still exist, am I right? I'm just checking. And, of course, through Amazon.com. Its author is with us tonight, Rod Gregg. Rod is the director of the Center for Military and Veteran Studies at Coastal Carolina University in South Carolina. By the way, a number of phenomenal books that he has penned down through the years, over 16 of them now all told on topics of the Battle of Gettysburg, uh, Civil War, on and on the list goes. So check out anything uh, written by Rod. Again, G-R-A-G-G, if you're going to Google his last name. Rod, it's curious. We talk about the notion oftentimes that that some will report uh, a number of the Founding Fathers as having been deists. And I find it curious because if we look at the actions of these men and the great risk that they took, the personal sacrifice, it it would seem to me that it would take an individual of greater character um, and and, and a sense of of higher calling than just somebody who casually acknowledged the existence of deity out there. It seems to me that most of the actions of these men in the founding days of this nation were people that were willing to sacrifice for a greater good because they knew the God that they served. Well, that's exactly right. You have to remember when we talk about uh, the founding fathers, the leaders of the American people in the colonial era, time of the American Revolution, that um, they reflected also the worldview of the American people, or they wouldn't have been holding office. And the worldview of the American people, without question at that time, was a faith-based. It was the Judeo-Christian worldview. And it's no accident that the Declaration of Independence uh, begins with what it calls a uh, self-evident truth that all men are created equal and are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, namely life, liberty, and and the pursuit of happiness. The Declaration of Independence had to be acceptable to the American people who were going to live with it and in many cases going to die for it. And the signers knew that. And they knew they had to have biblical justification for something as big as an independence movement or a revolution. And so that's why the Declaration of Independence is laced with the language of faith. Half of it makes the case against King George III, because Americans came to to view him in great numbers, as did these crafters of the Declaration, as uh, a leader uh, who was unfit to be a ruler of free people because they had come to view him as a tyrant who wanted and intended to usurp the higher law of God and replace it with the law of man. And Americans, uh, being biblically literate, were very conscious of the whole biblical doctrine of submission to authority. And so they were reluctant revolutionaries. And not until, uh, until the great numbers of them came to believe that uh, he was attempting to uh, usurp or take uh, authority over the higher law of God 
did they move into the ranks of uh, revolutionaries. And uh, they then came to view him and, and Parliament to a lesser degree as tyrants who were, uh, who were seeking to repress these inalienable or God-given rights, and they believed they had a biblical and moral duty to resist that. Now, as far as uh, the leaders and those who are deists, that really is something that has been uh, greatly exaggerated uh, in our day, and it really probably reflects more about uh, where American culture is today than it does the historical evidence of that. Time. Well, to be sure, I mean the attempt, I think, too, to uh, to take God and faith out of the equation, to kind of neutralize America's stand historically on the position of faith, uh, and and kind of eradicate our faith-based roots. I mean, let's face it, if, if you can eliminate that at the foundation, it's much easier then to move forward in uh, not only creating a religion-neutral America, but in some corners even a religion religious-hostile America. Well, you know, the great unreported story of our day, uh, of the last uh, 50 years, is the shift in the national consensus, or the shift in the worldview of America's leadership from a historic, traditional uh, Judeo-Christian worldview that holds that God is the authority over all things and God should be the central focus of all things, to a man-centered, secular, or humanistic worldview that says that man, not God, is the authority over all things and that man, not God, should be the center of all focus. Now, that's a seismic shift and, uh, and you know, why it's uh, having a trickle-down effect in the the American population, you can see uh, that the leadership in America in virtually all fields has really shifted in that direction in, in the field of uh, uh, business, uh, law, government, uh, entertainment, uh, the popular media, the culture, popular culture, the, the media, the news media, uh, movies, television, um, health care. It's shifted from this God-centered worldview to a man-centered worldview. And then when you have something like that happens, it means that those who are uh, responsible for conveying information have uh, are uncomfortable with things of faith, particularly of biblical faith. They, are, um, uh, they don't understand it in some cases. Uh, they're uncomfortable with it. Sometimes they really resist it or even hostile to it. And so for those reasons, I think that the, uh, the fundamental foundation of America's origins as a nation, which was faith-based, and that faith was the Judeo-Christian worldview, has, um, has really uh, almost been, uh, it's been neglected, it's, uh, and it's to a point that most Americans today, or at least many Americans today, don't know the story. Yeah, and, and sadly enough, and of course the irony is we see the manner in which this is demonstrated, the results of which are demonstrated in society and the world around us every single day. I mean, look at the disintegration of what's going on in our country morally and economically. Uh, there's proof positive, and even more so than what ought to be a firmer drive to return back to the understanding of our faith-based roots, um, the, the, the acceptance of the reality that colonial America was built on a foundation of biblical faith, and that any time you waver from it, you are going to be open for some pretty scary times, which we find ourselves in these days. By the Hand of Providence, How Faith Shaped the American Revolution 
and hopefully we'll be the guide to the next one. That's my subtitle, my sub-subtitle. Rod Bragg, its author, our guest on this segment of Lifeline. Again, a number of great resources that Rod has penned down through the years for those interested in uh, a real legitimate view of the faith influence on the founding of our nation. Then, too, again, for parents out there, the homeschoolers, if you're looking for great teaching uh, content, then, again, Google his name, Rod Gray. You can find lots of great resources, too, all of which available on the web and through Amazon.com by the hand of Providence. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Uh, over the course of conversation with a colleague of mine, he was talking about a series of photographs, a uh, collage, really, floating about on Facebook. One side to the left depicts photographs of the likes of Albert Einstein, Carl Sandburg, Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Jefferson, Arturo Toscanini, a good Irish name for you. And on the left, on the left, a photograph of Snooky from Jersey Shore. By the way, if you don't know who that is, congratulate yourself. The caption below this collage of photograph reads, If you know the person on the right, but none on the left, you might be what's wrong with America. And that, I think, is an ideal introduction to my next guest on the program tonight. He is the author of a number of best-selling books, including Intellectual Morons and A Conservative History of the American Left. His latest book is entitled Blue Collar Intellectuals, When the Enlightened and the Everyman Elevated America. We're joined tonight by Daniel Flynn. Uh, Daniel, as we mentioned, in addition to being a best-selling author, is also a columnist for humanevents.com and a blogger at flynnfiles.com. And Daniel, thanks so much for being with us on the program tonight. Thank you for having me. I thought uh, that the story of that collage of photographs, I don't know what, but maybe you have seen them, in, in many ways kind of defines exactly what has happened in this slow uh, but steady slide into the abyss in America today, uh, where even as we've tried to search for some sort of a connection between uh, the intellectuals and, and the so-called inspiration for the Occupy Wall Street movement, there is scant little evidence of same. Yeah, I haven't seen those pictures, but you, you did what a good radio host will do, which is to create a visual with, with your words. <laughs> so I, I feel like I've, I've seen those pictures, and I, I've certainly seen Snooky and, and those other characters as well. But that's, that's kind of where we're at um, as, as a culture, where you know, it, it used to be the case um, around the mid-century mark that the United States of America, you know, the people of the United States of America were the best, you know, the most well-educated people in the history of the world. You had University of the Air style radio programs, the Book of the Month Club, great books, discussion groups, meeting in YMCA's and union halls around the country. Um, you don't see that very much today, and I think part of the reason is that the everyman is, you know, rather than, than reaching for something higher, they're kind of dragging their arms ever lower, you know, for, for Snooky and the situation and all that kind of thing. Um, but on the other side of the coin, uh, you don't have intellectuals as eager to engage the everyman. Um, and we, we once had intellectuals, you know, the blue-collar intellectuals that I write about, who spoke not just to other eggheads, but were, were very um, enthusiastic about opening up a conversation to all comers. And I think the, the, the issue we have today, sure, part of it's, uh, you know, Joe Sixpack not being, being um, as, as intellectually curious as he once was, but the other part of it is that you have... Um, uh, you know, academics who are, who are operating in, in an intellectual ghetto. 
And let's face it, there needs to be some source of stimulation uh, to encourage that intellectual curiosity. And I think, as you aptly point out, uh, throughout your new book, Blue Collar Intellectuals, I mean, part of this we can lay uh, squarely at the feet of, you know, reality shows, which are anything but, uh, you know, video games is entertainment. Uh, Facebook is our singular means by which we, we stay socially connected. I imagine what a shock it would be for our great-great-grandparents who communicated either in person, uh, faccia a faccia, as we would say in Italian, or by the old-fashioned method of, of handwriting letters, and now all of a sudden it's been reduced down to anything that you can get in 140 characters uh, on on Twitter, and this all of a sudden has now been sub, the substitute uh, for social interaction. I mean, I, I, I think we can point at a number of levels of the steady decline, if not outright decay, uh, not only our, our social interaction skills, but our, our intellectual skills as well. Yeah, definitely. And, I, you know, I, I was out in your neck of the woods researching this book. And something that you said really brought to mind um, some of my research in the archives, looking at people like Eric Hoffer at the Hoover Institution or Mil- Milton Friedman and Hoffer having some papers also at the San Francisco Public Library. And when you, when you research archives of people who lived, you know, 50, 100 years ago, you, you grasp how um, even just normal people, how, how good they were at writing. And they wrote letters. They wrote long letters to people. And I, I wonder what's going to happen 50 or 100 years from now uh, when people look at our writing. I don't know if they're going to be saving Twitter tweets or they're going to be saving text messages, but I shudder to think at, at uh, how they will um, look at us uh, from the way we write, because we're not, we're not really impressing people with that. I well, think. and you point out in the book, and I, I saw this, and, and there was a resounding knee-slapping uh, amen, brother, when I when I read this line inside of the book, uh, this notion that, you know, for the longest time we used to decry uh, the kind of trash that showed up at the grocery store uh, checkout line, you know, which was everything from, uh, you know, the world, world's weird news to uh, the National Enquirer, et cetera, et cetera. Now, all of a sudden today, it is hard to differentiate between uh, what you see at the grocery checkout stand and what you see at the newsstand these days. And, and, and even, you know, even with the Internet and the ability of it to, to bring to us such a vast knowledge of the, the collected, uh, you know, awareness and understanding of the world uh, right there at the fingertips of the keyboard, uh, it seems as if even so-called legitimate news sites uh, can't deal somehow with the abstraction to the outright uh, obsession of things like, you know, focusing on no talent, no buddies like a Kim Kardashian. Uh, all of this, I think, just, you know, indicative, as you pointed out, you know, when the newsstand is no different than the checkout line at the grocery store, um, you know, it, it might be subtle, but I think it's a very profound subtly, uh, subtlety as to what it says about who we have become as a nation. Yeah, I mean, the book is really about a time when smart looked for you and i think what you have today is you know you you can still look you can still find smart if you look hard enough but it's smart's not really looking for you in other words there's sort of an invasive stupidity there's you know i i I travel a lot in in writing books and i get into the back of a cab and all of a sudden i don't know when this started but there's a tv that i can't turn off in the back of a cab you sit in an airport waiting room there's no escape from uh, you know, the, the CNN International blaring in the, in the background. You can't find a quiet corner to read. Even when you get on the subway, it used to be, if you, you'd notice, you know, when you ride the subway, uh, people would be reading. They'd be reading newspapers and magazines and books. And now, I mean, there's still some people who are reading, but most of the time people are texting, they're playing a video game, <laughs> they're doing something with an electronic gadget. And I can't help but think from observing all this, 
how we spend, you know, how we spend our leisure time, it's largely become a waste of time. And you know, far be it for me to lecture someone, hey, you have to use your time in, in the way that I want you to use your time. I'm, that's not what I'm trying to do. But I, I can't help but thinking that the way we use our leisure time is really affecting us in a negative way as, as a country. You're right. And as you point out, you know, for, for, for the working man, the blue-collar guy that worked in industry uh, back in the 1930s and 40s, say, or who had migrated to states like California during the Dust Bowl uh, period in Oklahoma, um, you know, by, by no stretch of the imagination where these edu- educated people are necessarily highbrow or intellectuals. And yet, as you say, there was enough in popular, popular culture and enough influence by the so-called intellectuals that went looking for the common man or, or the blue-collar guy to help try and elevate him. I mean, my goodness, it, it's not that many years ago that things like, you know, Campbell's Playhouse would present uh, Shakespearean plays in their entirety uh, over the course of several evenings or the Firestein Theater with, with great orchestras and great opera. And this would be prime-time television, 8 o'clock at night on a Wednesday evening and the entire family sat down and watched this and learned and they got exposed to some culture to some culture and and they had a little bit of you know the, the intellectual exercise going on all of that has disappeared sure and you know i think about the first um, blue collar intellectual that i write about a guy named will durant um, and i you know one of the reasons why i think these blue collar intellectuals had and you know felt an obligation to to engage the everyman is because they came from um, you know the, the mass of of, uh, of Americans that were not at the top, but were you know somewhere in the scrum there. And Will Durant, I mean, this is an uh, amazing only in America story. His father was illiterate. I mean, Will Durant wrote the best-selling philosophy book in the 20th century, the story of philosophy, uh, outsold Charles Lindbergh's autobiography after he he flew over the Atlantic. I mean, that's how much people were eager to read his book. Um, Will Durant, along with Ariel Durant, his wife. Wrote some of you know books that were perennially on the bestseller list, the hist- you know basic, a history of the world, which he called the story of civilization, eleven volume set uh, over the course of forty five years from the nineteen twenties all the way up through the nineteen seventies. His dad couldn't speak a lick of English. He had ten kids and he worked in a factory. And when we talk about the American dream, we're so transfixed on the monetary angle, and certainly there are these rags to riches Horatio Alger stories. But the striver culture that I'm talking about in blue-collar intellectuals also had to do with uh, an educational betterment. And I think the story of a guy like Will Durant uh, exemplifies that, and I think the fact that we don't see that as much anymore. Well, and we've, I mean, we've pointed, we've, we've dumbed down democracy in, in, in every sense of the word, and unfortunately, uh, education, whether we're talking about uh, Main Street, K-12, through uh, on up to even the higher levels of education, has seen this huge paradigm shift from teaching people how to think, presenting the facts, and then allowing them to draw their own conclusions to the easy way out, simply what to think, where we can regurgitate a couple of details here and there that tends to sort of just make up a a particular political opinion uh, or political thrust and end of story. And and this, I think, is demonstrating, as uh, Daniel Flynn points out in his book, the danger of what's happening. Uh, when we're no longer enlightened, when we're no longer capable of thinking for ourselves. And, you know, we've had some examples in not too far distant history uh, of what happens when uh, mankind stops thinking for itself and relies on someone else or, or some other body to think for it and the dangers that all of that brings about. 
We're talking today about his new book, Blue Collar Intellectuals, When the Enlightened and the Everyman Elevated America. Uh, those days are not that far ago, and I think things can be done to, to revive those days and, and to bring it back. Uh, but it's going to take an awful lot of work on all of our behalfs. We're going to take a time out, come back to more of our conversation. Um, and as we do so, the phone lines are open for thoughts and comments. Toll free at 888-367-5329-888-F-O-R-K-F-A-X. In particular, are there some intellectual types out there that would agree? My goodness, what's happened? That we, we've dumbed down society and we've extracted out of popular culture anything that gives a sense of... Uh, of refinement to it, of culture or class to it, where pop culture today, if you spend any time on the Internet or watching MTV or anything that masquerades as, as entertainment on many cable television stations today, uh, it's become an absolute wasteland. It was, was not always like this. So if we keep that in mind, then the question is, what do we do to revive it so we can get America back on track? Big equation here at a lot of levels, to be sure. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're talking with author Daniel Flynn. A look at blue-collar intellectuals when the enlightened and the everyman elevated America. And we're talking about uh, what has become the slow slide down into the abyss. And as you point out in the book, Daniel, as much as we'd like to um, say, gee, what's wrong with America? Where did we go wrong? There's a degree to which the intellectuals have ultimately failed the culture. They no longer engage the culture the way we once did. Um, you mentioned my friend Milton Freeman, who had been a guest on this program many, many times uh, before his passing, and how much he liked to engage the common man. At what point do you think, where, where do we see the distinction when that ceased to be the case? Well, I, I think with a guy like Friedman, he has a very interesting career because the first half of it is essentially engaging other intellectuals. And then at a certain point, he, he goes as far as he's going to go within academia, and he decides to write Capitalism and Freedom, which is for a, a lay audience and not for an academic audience. He decides to write this Newsweek column, which he writes for 18 years, uh, every three weeks. The Free to Choose documentary, he was very skeptical of that because he thought anyone who could be convinced by a uh, half-an-hour broadcast on television would just be reconverted to the opposite position the next time uh, another half-hour program came about, you know, advocating the opposite position. So he, he was skeptical of some of these things, but he thought that it was his obligation as an economist to engage the, the educated um, layperson. I think, uh, and, and Friedman was obviously doing this in, into, the, into the 1990s and, and really up until his death just a few years ago. There are still people that you see doing this. I mean, that one, one guy who, you know, I don't necessarily agree with, with what he does, but I think Ken Burns is someone who you might call a blue-collar intellectual. I mean, he, he's someone who people think he's an historian. He's not. He's some guy with a history degree, just like me. You know, he's a history degree from a, from a college, and he decided to make documentaries. And, boy, that's a tough thing to make history come alive, to, to, to make the dead walk again, essentially. And that's, that's what he does with some of his documentaries. And I... I really admire that. Um, I, I may not admire some of his views, but I admire people who at least make the effort to um, to reach the common man. And I don't think that we see that too much um, with academia, with people who are sort of off in their insular world talking amongst themselves. I think they would be better served if they talked 
to, uh, you know, if they got out of their intellectual ghettos and talked to the everyman. And I think the everyman would be better served as well. They bought, it would be, you know, it would be a win-win for everyone. A big part of this is, is the kind of the isolation into the ivory tower, so to speak. But then to something else that I made reference uh, to Daniel before the break, and that is what I've identified as a major shift where at one time the, the principal component um, in education was to teach students, whether we're talking about K through 12 or at the higher degree levels, how to think. Yes, certainly there were attempts at influencing. There was no doubt about that. I, I think that we can see, you know, a, a, an agenda of one sort or another woven through lots of periods of history, certainly in, in 20th and 21st century history, to be sure. But all of a sudden, we, we saw this major shift in education, particularly in the late 50s and early 1960s, where it was no longer about teaching the students what to think, giving them the tools so they could draw their own conclusions, but rather we kind of skipped over that process, and now we just gave them what to think. We went from how to think to what to think. Yeah, well, one of the, um, the blue-collar intellectuals that I write about is Mortimer Adler, and he was really the evangelist behind the Great Books movement. And one of the reasons why um, Adler was so successful with, with the Great Books and selling them is because there was a void that the, the you know, Harvard and, and some of the other leading institutions really stopped teaching um, those cultural common denominators, those great books of the Western world. So this was that, like when they, they published, uh, in fact, I've got a whole set at home, like the Harvard Classics? Strangely enough, Charles Eliot, who was the guy behind the Harvard Classics, one of the reasons that was successful as well is because Eliot had basically created that void by getting rid of the classics and the curriculum at Harvard. So there's an irony there. Huh. And with, with, with a guy like uh, Adler, whose background is really amazing in the sense that he, he's probably the only Ivy League Ph.D. I know who had not gotten a high school diploma nor a college diploma before getting his Ph.D. But the amazing thing for me is not really his academic accomplishments, but his accomplishments as a salesman in the sense that you can, you can go door-to-door and sell someone a vacuum cleaner. You can go door-to-door and, and sell someone flatware. But the idea of going door-to-door and selling everyday Americans a million sets of the 54-volume Great Books of the Western, uh, Great Books of the Western World that, to me, is absolutely amazing. And Mortimer Adler helped do that at mid-century in America. And his big point, here's his big point to get to your question. His big point was, you know, if you just have a monarchy, if you just have one king, um, you know, there's that phrase, the education fit for a king. And you, all you have to be concerned about is one guy's education and your government's fine. But what happens when your king is essentially 311 million people? <laughs> you have to, you know, that, that flaw, that idea, the education fit for a king. You've got to apply that to 311 million people. And if you don't concern yourself with everyone's education, you're going to have uh, a citizenry that's not only not fit to govern the country, but they're really not fit to govern their own souls. And that's the problem, as Adler saw it, and that's why he was such an enthusiast of, of Aristotle and Plato and Shakespeare and all of those great books that used to be the cultural common denominators and now often are left out of the curriculum entirely. Well, and let's face it, we, we can just simply sit down and look at the headline news today, and we see the results of this. You know, what happens? Well, you end up with a, a, a monetary, a moral, a social, and a spiritual deficit at every level. 
you know, in in economic terms, that's what leads to a sixteen point four trillion dollar deficit that nobody can quite explain. Uh, in in moral terms or spiritual terms, this is what leads to to people acting out in unbelievable ways, kind of the personification of of man's ultimate cre- you know cruelty to man, and 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 no sense of guidelines or respect for others, for life, for any of it. So I, I think we're also, we're seeing the product add, of it. Yeah, and, and can I add in cultural terms? Um, you know, we just um, we just went through 2011, and this is the first year in the history of Hollywood. Just just to throw something out there that I think every listener can relate to, the first time in the history of Hollywood that the top ten best-selling movies at the box office in a year were all either remakes, sequels, or based on old comic book characters mm. from 50 or 60 years ago. In other words, there's a complete dearth of originality in the entertainment that we have. In the sense that, that we you know we're watching the Fast and the Furious Part Five and you know the Hangover Part Two and that's what people are buying um, and it to me it just speaks to uh, the fact that as a culture we're living off the fumes of an America from fifty sixty years ago and you could probably say the same thing economically and and, and, and translate that into other areas beyond the culture as well I, I think that you know as much as uh, we probably don't want to use uh, what's selling at the box office as a um, measuring stick, as a yardstick of what's going on in, in popular culture and society today, I think it's oftentimes a very accurate one. And you're right. I mean, there seems to be this this major creative deficit going on. And, and where what things that do seem to strike a chord are, are rehashing of films that sometimes have their genesis going back 20, 30, 40 years or more. We're going to take a brief time out. When we come back, I want to talk, too, about what seems to be the disappearance of of the warning system, the early warning system that America had in place. Now, to be sure, thank goodness there are people like Daniel Flynn and others that are trying to, to fill the gap. But whatever happened to the Aldous Huxleys of the world and the Ray Bradburys and the, the Orwells of the world who wrote books warning of what happens to a society when you forfeit your intellectual rights, your moral rights, your spiritual rights, your right of self-governance? We'll get back to more of our conversation. A look at blue-collar intellectuals when the enlightened and the everyman elevated America. Back to our conversation with best-selling author Daniel Flynn as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation. Best-selling author Daniel Flynn, the book Blue-Collar Intellectuals. By the way, you can get a copy of the book at... Uh, bookstores, and of course information too on his daily blog at flynnfiles.com. Daniel, what of the notion that we've also attended to lost kind of the early warning system? You know, I, I grew up on the, the, the writings of the likes of Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, uh, Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. I mean, everybody remembers him for his work on Star Trek, and yet it, the the prolific writing that he did, the warning uh, that's contained in Fahrenheit 451, George Orwell's 1984. I mean, so many aspects of any of these three books and others like them that that have served as kind of the early warning sign. That it seems as if a lot of that has kind of disappeared today. We 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 live all today in the moment, and we don't think much about tomorrow, do we? Well, there, there's an interesting tidbit in my book relating to both 1984 and Fahrenheit 451. There was a a, uh, a prep school in my home state of Massachusetts. They charge forty thousand dollars a year for students to attend. And a couple of years ago, they decided to get rid of all of their books in their library. <laughs> the headmaster said, people are acting like this is, you know, 1984. It's not. And I thought, you know, it, it's not just 1984. It's Fahrenheit 451. And instead of spending the money on books, they decided to spend 
um, $50,000 or more than $50,000, revamping the library, adding three flat screen televisions to what once was a library and a cappuccino machine. <laughs> so that's the brave new world to sort of complete your trifecta there that, that we're entering into. I think of a guy like Bradbury, and, uh, you know, when he was a kid, he, he had a lot going against him when he was growing up in L.A. He was, he was uh, extremely poor, so poor that he had to sleep in the same bed with his brother up until the time he was an adult. It was a pull-out couch in their living room. And uh, he, the other thing he had going against him was he was like a nerd nerd. He used to corner Marlena Dietrich and Clark Gable and, and Judy Garland for autographs on his roller skates around uh, Hollywood. He was really a terror. The one thing he had going for him is that he was super smart, Ray Bradbury. And so when it came time to go to college, he, he couldn't go. He, in the Depression, you know, he didn't, have, they didn't have any money. And so what he did instead was he went to the public library for three days a week, and he read, and he read, and he read. And he did this for four years, three days a week, in, in lieu of going to college. And I, I think that a guy like Bradbury, he had it right. In other words, uh, today, these days, People go to college, and all they care about is that piece of paper at the end of four years. They could care less about the, the, the education that comes in between. Bradbury, all he cared about was the education. He could have cared less about that piece of paper. And I think his life gives us a little bit of a lesson to see how our priorities are a little bit screwed up today, where people go to college for the credentialism, for, for job training, but they don't go for the learning. Well, they, they go and they go and they go in order to get the paper, to get the degree, to get earn a higher salary, so they can keep up with the Joneses. And yet, there's very little. And it, there are certainly always exceptions to this rule, but there there is not as much emphasis by any means as there used to be about getting your degree and then going out and doing something to change the world. That, that's right, and, and you know, I'm, I'm not. I don't want to make this into a, a big tirade against higher education. But there are, uh, you know, the, the blue-collar intellectuals that I write about, I mean, there's a guy like uh, Milton Friedman, who obviously had a huge benefit from being at the University of Chicago, their economics department. But there's someone like Eric Hoffer, who in San Francisco was by day loading, uh, you know, uh, cargo off the docks of ships uh, in, in, in San Francisco. He, he was bay. a longshoreman, was wasn't he? Was that? Wasn't he a longshoreman? He was a longshoreman, and the, the point here is that he never went to school for a day in his life, and yet, you know, by day he's doing this longshoreman work, and by night in his off hours, he's writing what became The True Believer, which really became one of the best books in the 20th century to understand in the 20th century. And, um, be, you know, because of the fact that there was this American general in station France who read his book in 1951 and then came back to the United States and became president, he was elected president the next year, we're talking about Dwight Eisenhower, who loved Hoffer's book, and because everyone wants to read what, what the president's reading, Hoffer became a big celebrity, and all of a sudden the intellectual that all of America wants to consult is a guy who's never been to school a day in his life. Why do you think, then, we've seen this shift at the intellectual level, where the desire to foster an educated and cultured society just seems to have fallen by the wayside? Boy, when you, when you hear intellectuals talk, they speak in a jargon that I don't even think they understand, uh, they write books that nobody reads. They speak at conferences that nobody attends. It's, it's almost as if they're trying to convey their apartness from the rest of the society. They're not really trying to convey any substantive idea, per se, but they're trying to convey how they're in this educated clique, how they're, you know, they're kind of above everyone else. And to me, I mean, that may be cathartic. It may make them feel good. But I don't know what it, what it does. You know, it does, certainly doesn't do anything for society. And, you know, that's part of the reason I wrote this book, Blue Collar Intellectuals, because here are intellectuals 
who engaged the public and who spoke to the public and who, you know who may have had their own intellectual work with you know with, with involving strictly other intellectuals, but who at least made an effort to uplift um, the masses from which they sprang. And I think nowadays, because a lot of the people who are in academia um, certainly don't come from that. Uh, the, the kind of uh, place that Ray Bradbury or an Eric Hoffer came from, they have absolutely no interest of uh, of, of uh, taking that on. So and, and rather than having kind of come up through the system, so to speak, uh, they, they began as a member of the elite. That's all that they've known. And so they, they kind of hover in that rarefied air with no interest whatsoever of their feet ever touching ground. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. And, I, don't, you know, look, I'm married to an academic, so I don't want to bash them too much or I'll get kicked out of my house. You'll be sleeping with the dog be... tonight otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, 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 you know, there was something great going on in America for much of the last century um, where you ha- had these guys like Will, Will and Ariel Durant and Ray Bradbury and, and, and Milton Friedman and, and, uh, and, and, you know, all the people that I write about we're making an effort to engage the everyman, and of course that's kind of what talk radio does, but you don't see that as much uh, from, from academics or scholars or intellectuals anymore, and that's kind of why I wrote the book, is hoping to jumpstart that again. How do we do that then? A closing thought from you, if we can, Daniel, in a minute or so that we have left. How do we get it jumpstarted once again? Well, I think in everyone in their own life, you know, I don't, I don't think this is the type of book that, that people are going to read and say, oh, well, let's pass this piece of legislation, or aha, you know, this is what we do to make everything right. Um, it's not one of those books, but what it is is I think anyone who reads it can make those changes in their own life. They can shut off the television for a day or shut off the Internet for the day and pick up a book. You mentioned jokingly in the, in, in, coming into the segment, you know, if book, you know, bookstores exist. I mean, I used to say you could buy it at Barnes & Noble and Borders, but there's no more Borders. And it doesn't seem to me too many used bookstores anymore. And I think if just people um, look at the common denominator, how um, people have lifted themselves up intellectually over the course of the last 400 years or so, the, the common denominator there is the book. And I think people really got to get back into to reading and not so much being into in front of screens, whether it's your cell phone or your computer or your television. Well, and moreover, I think it's important to underscore the fact, Daniel, that this is not just for the matter of, of you know, lifting the common denominator and, 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 and uh, you know, sparing the culture from further demise and, and returning once again um, a sense of, of poise and culture and class to a pop culture. Uh, at certain levels, this also gets to the heart of the of the very protection of otherwise the ultimate demise, I think, of our society and our nation. Because if we don't have in stock and trade, at the very least, or at least our, our, our intellectual capabilities, uh, there's not much that we have left. And, that, and that's, I think, why Adler was doing the great books of the Western world, because society was being torn asunder, because we no longer had these cultural common denominators. And he said, look, these are the great books that have united us as a culture, Let's get back into them. Even if, and it, it, you know, when he was on the cover of Time magazine, the subheadline said, "Should professors commit suicide?" And that was in jest, of course. But there was a grain of truth to it in the sense that he was offering education without the middleman, knocking the middleman out, and basically saying, "Education is a lifetime responsibility. It's not something you do exclusively in schools. It's something you do over the course of your life." And I think if people look at it from that perspective, um, they may be a little bit more healthy. One final question i got to squeeze in here. You talk in the book about apostate historians. Elaborate on that for a moment, would you, Daniel? 
Yeah, sure. Will and Ariel Durant. I mean, Will Durant to me, he was the apostate historian. Everything he did when he when he got when he was in the seminary and then he decided one day he was an atheist. He got not only got he kicked out of the seminary, or not only to leave the seminary, but he got excommunicated from the Catholic Church. When he when he became an anarchist, um, he he was an anarchist teacher. He fell in love with one of his students who was 15 years old. And they got. She was, he was 27. He got. He got married at the at the city hall. She went to the marriage ceremony with her roller skates. He was always doing things against the grain. When he was an anarchist, a later socialist, went to the Soviet Union. Everyone expected him to come back with all these tales of heaven on earth. But instead, he said, "This place is a gigantic prison." You know? And so everything that he did in life, he always was was um, doing the opposite of what was expected of him. And of course, his marriage ends up by winning jointly a Pulitzer Prize with his wife. They get, they're married for 68 years. You wouldn't expect that out of someone, a teacher who marries a student. Amazing. Daniel, we sure appreciate the time and the insights. Great book, Blue Collar Intellectuals, When the Enlightened and the Everyman Elevated America, available on the web through Amazon.com, bookstores if you can find them, and again, Daniel's blog at FlynnFiles.com. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Media Group. All rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.